Welcome to Coffee and Conversations with Chris. We're glad you're here. Here's your host, Pastor Chris Atkinson. Good morning. Welcome to Coffee with Chris with me. <laughs> uh, yes, my name is Chris Atkinson. I'm the pastor of Pinewoods Chapel, and uh, you have stumbled across Coffee with Chris, where we discuss some theological issues that pertain to today's environment. So over the last number of weeks, we've been talking about civil disobedience and the church and just talking about the role of the church in culture. And obviously that is number one priority that the church needs to preach the gospel and encourage people to be discipled and uh, just grow in their faith with God. Uh, but also the church has this role in society to actually hold government accountable for good government. And uh, part of understanding what good government is, is understanding what the scriptures actually say to us about rulers. And we've been talking about that. But today, today we're actually going to get into some very interesting uh, situations and really try and talk about uh, how we know when it is right to break the law. Because as we have been talking about over in Romans chapter 13, we're actually told that we are to submit to the authorities and to obey the laws of the land. And, and that is actually a good Christian thing to do, is to be obedient to uh, the laws of the land. But there's a number of places in Scripture where we see God's people totally defying uh, commands of rulers and kings. And so we're going to take some time, unpack that today, and eventually we're going to work towards this uh, building an ethic of decision making so that we can know when is the right time to uh, break laws and, and be faithful to God. Uh, or when we actually need to submit to the laws that are around us and that they're good and right and just. And God actually wants us to submit to those laws that are around us. So as we start off today... Um, we just want to continue to sort of refresh our memories, what we've been talking about. Uh, one of the things we talked about last week was uh, conscientious objectors. Now, a conscientious objector is someone who, because of their conscience, does not want to do something that has been made, uh, like a law has been made by the government. So uh, in military service, we have that. Uh, conscientious objectors didn't go to war. Uh, because of uh, pacifist uh, beliefs. Uh, we also have medical doctors that uh, have uh, conscientious objection to medical procedures that are out there. Uh, we also have people, uh, religious leaders and clergymen, who are, uh, are conscientious objectors uh, to same-sex marriage. So there's a number of different ways that this can play out in, in our society and in our context. But today we are going to look at uh, this whole subject of how to know when to break the law. Because uh, this is really important for us to have our conscience uh, good uh, and not seared and not silent um, and not evil either, where we're always wanting to rebel against any kind of authority. So if you've got your Bible with you, we're going to take some time and run through a whole pile of scriptures today. And uh, hopefully they'll show up on the screen so that uh, you don't have to listen for me to say them. So first, first off, we want to make a distinction between uh, being charged 
for something and thrown into jail because others don't like what you're doing or consciously knowing about a law and then breaking it. Okay. And that's, and that's an important distinction because, uh, in scripture, actually there's some examples where, uh, God's people were just going about their business and the society around them didn't like what was actually happening. And so they threw them into jail. Now they weren't consciously breaking any laws in that context. Uh, what they were actually doing is just being followers of Jesus Christ. Um, so there is a difference here. So let's just take a look at that. And then we're going to look at times when they consciously knew that they were breaking the law and they still broke the law. So over in uh, Acts chapter uh, 16, let's go to 16. We could, we're also going to go to Acts chapter 4 and 5 because there's a, a few examples in the book of Acts about how the apostles uh, broke laws, but they didn't really know that they were a law, but they were doing something that the society around them didn't like, and so they threw them into jail. And in Acts chapter 16, we, we actually see the apostles, so it's Paul, and so here's the context of Acts 16. Uh, so Paul and Silas are in uh, Rome, I believe it is in Rome. Um, anyway, there there's this slave girl that's following them uh, around. And uh, they were... To think here. Sorry, it's in Messalonica. That's where it is, not in Rome. It's Messalonica. So anyway, Paul and Silas are in are in prison, or not in prison yet. They're just through the the town in in Messalonica, and there's this slave girl who's following them, who is possessed by a spirit of divination, and she continues to follow uh, Paul and Silas for a number of days. And this is what she says: These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. And finally, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned around and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And at that very moment, the Spirit came out of her. But when her owners actually saw that their hope of gain or financial gain from this uh, girl was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. And they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept order practice. And the crown joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they were thrown into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them safely. Um, here's a situation where God's people are just going about their daily lives and just living the gospel out in the world. And we talked about how the church, when the government is ungodly, needs to live out the kingdom of God in our world. Uh, and in this case, what happened is that there was no uh, laws at that point in time there where they were breaking while they're helping uh, set people free from sin and slavery. Uh, but these people then got upset about it and 
they threw them into jail. Over in uh, Acts chapter 4 and 5, we see a very similar situation. And this, this all plays out in uh, Jerusalem, where uh, Peter and John are preaching the gospel. And all of the rest of the apostles are preaching the gospel too. And uh, one, one of the things that, that happens is that uh, the, the high priests in Jerusalem didn't necessarily like the healings that were happening through the apostles. And so uh, we, we can pick this up uh, down uh, in Acts chapter 4. Um, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. And they said to one another, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them, and it's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more in anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. So here's another example where the, the apostles, the disciples, are just going about their business. They're just preaching the gospel. They're just being faithful. And a group of people rise up against them and say, no, this isn't good. And so anyway, what ends up happening here is they threaten them and beat them. But over, as we continue on in chapter 5, they actually... Um, gather the people around and they take them. So the temple guard, the priests and the leaders of the church in the time of the early disciples. And again, these were Jewish people. It was the Jewish Judean system. It wasn't sort of Christians that were rising up and doing this. Um, but over in chapter 5, verse 27, it says, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name. Yet here you are, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So Peter stands up and says, We must obey God rather than men. And the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, and God exalted him. And so when they heard all of this stuff, as Peter was proclaiming the good news of Jesus to them, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. But they actually... Uh, had a little bit of wisdom because this this man in their midst says, hey, if this is of God, you're not going to stop it. But if this is just man, it's going to come to nothing. So in both of these passages and where we see in, in Acts chapter 16 and in Acts chapter 5, here the apostles are actually just doing what God has called them to do. They don't know that there's a law that says that they can't teach about Jesus. And so in fact, there is no law at this point that they can't teach about Jesus. And, and again, this is the sort of the religious establishment of the time coming against the apostles. And this is really important for us to discern the difference because that, would, that doesn't necessarily apply to some of these cases where you're, the government has actually said something and you're going against the government. Because in this case, it's a religious thing. It's not written down anywhere that you can't teach about Jesus at this point in time, but yet people are rising up against the apostles because of what they're saying about Jesus. 
And so that's an important distinction when we start talking about when we know how to break the law or when we should break the law. Because here, they're not consciously objecting. They're just being about their father's business. And right now, with all the stuff that's going on with COVID and everything, people have actually used some of these scripture verses to say, well, here's some examples where the apostles did these things. And so we need, well, that's not the same case, okay? It's not the same parallel case. But we will get to those cases that are parallel, all right? So the other side of this is when you consciously know about a law and you decide to break it. And there is a ton of passages in the Bible that speak to this, where we see laws that were made by kings and then people totally went against those laws. So we're just going to start in the Old Testament. We're going to roll through because I want to show uh, when there's, a, there's actually an ethic here uh, that is shown in the scriptures, consistently shown in the scriptures, of when we actually do need to disobey the laws of the land. So here's the first one. The Hebrew midwives over in Exodus uh, chapter 1. Now, just a, a little bit of context here. So the children of Israel are just becoming the children of Israel. They've been, so we've got Ab Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, uh, they go down into Egypt because of the famine in the land. And they are now in Egypt and they stay in Egypt for a long time. And the descendants of Abraham grow and grow and grow. And they are uh, getting larger and larger and larger. And currently they are under the leadership of Egypt and the Pharaoh. And so the king of Egypt, who's the Pharaoh, says that this is not going well. And all of these Israelites, who are they're not really Israelites, but they're, they're becoming Israelites in this whole process of becoming a people, uh, that their numbers are getting too large and we should kill some of them. And so there's a decree that's sent out by uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt to the midwives of Israel. And so we can, we can read about this in Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. It says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shepherah, and the other one Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is his daughter, you shall live. But the, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the male children live. So here's a great example of a command that came from a ruler and people disobeyed it. Now, as we continue reading, we have the second instance of a uh, breaking of a command. So so what happens? So, so the midwives fear God, so they're, they're not going to obey the king. So then, verse 18, it says, So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to the Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and God multiplied and 
grew very strong, and because of the midwives feared God, he gave them families. The Pharaoh commit. So here's here's this verse 22. So now Pharaoh is quite upset about this because the midwives won't do what he has commanded. So now the Pharaoh commands all people. So all across his nation. So it would be all of Egypt on all uh, places where he has rule as Pharaoh. And he makes this command. He says, verse 22, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So there's this, it's kind of like if Justin Trudeau made this rule that said all male children should die across Canada. That's the kind of thing that's happening here. And so what happens in this context? Well, we see the birth of Moses. And there's a, a man and a woman that come together. It says in chapter 2, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, they hid him three months. So they're breaking the command of the king in Egypt. And when she could hide him no longer, she took him and put him in a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with, with uh, pitchman and bark. And then she put the child in it and placed it along the reeds of the riverbank. You see, Moses' parents are disobeying the law of the king. And here's the context. The context is an un, ungodly, ungod-fearing king, this king of Egypt, this pharaoh. And he's wanting to kill all the male children and the midwives and now individual families are saying we are disobeying the king's verdict and this is this is important for us to see because it's not just this example in egypt but as we go on we can see over in esther so what's the context of esther well queen esther becomes a queen in the time period where uh, the children of Israel are in captivity and uh, she is a queen well she becomes a queen there's a whole story that becomes a queen of how she gets there um, let's let me just turn over there and uh, we'll look at it because there's a whole context and we actually see commands that the king gives royal decrees he decrees to his his current wife which is queen vashti that she should come into uh his chamber in front of all these other people and she says no she defies the king's command and she actually loses her life uh for that uh, uh at the same time uh when she dies the king's got to find another uh king and so or another queen and so he then goes through this whole process to find uh, Queen Esther and we have Queen Esther then becoming queen beside this king uh, and as this plays out Mordecai comes into the picture and he actually wants to kill all the Jews and this is actually important because uh, how this comes about is important as we see this uh, ethic of deciding when we actually need to disobey the laws of the land so in Esther chapter 4 
we see Esther agreeing to help the Jews. So what's at stake here is Mordecai has put in place this law that says the Jews are going to be killed. At the same time, there's also a law that uh, says that no one can come into the presence of the king unless the king has invited them. And as we look here in chapter 4 of Esther, verse uh, 16, so they go through this whole process. Mordecai uh, convinces Esther uh, that she's been put in this place uh, for such a time as this. And so um, this is what Esther says, and this is how we know she's actually breaking the king's command. It says uh, in verse uh, 16, maybe I better back up a little bit, a little bit here. So um, verse 14, it says, so this is Mordecai speaking, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish... I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So here's this situation where Esther is the queen. She knows the laws of the land and she knows that what she's about to do is against the law of the king. And this is actually very important for us to see because uh, there's something here that we see in her language. Uh, number one, she says, if I perish, I perish. So she's being disobedient to the law of the king by presenting herself to the king. She's going to be asking for the Jews to be saved, which the law has been, at this point, written by Mordecai to kill all of the Jews. But she's accepting the consequences here that if she goes towards the, before the king breaking this law, that she may die because that's the consequence of breaking this law. So here's, here's what is important here. She's being disobedient to the law, but yet she's submissive to the law because she's willing to actually die. And that's a huge distinction because a lot of times people want to break the law, but they don't want to be submissive to the law. They want to be disobedient to the law, but they don't want to suffer the consequences if they're caught being disobedient to the law. And that actually, those two things must go together because there's still a submissive section that's separate from disobedience. And what we see here in Esther uh, is this amazing uh, faith where she is saying okay I know that this is the right thing to do and if I perish I perish and this is where her conscience is informing her about her decision-making and what she needs to do now 
what we see here, both in the cases of the uh, Hebrew women and also the uh, parents of, of Moses and now in Esther, is that there's a decision-making ethic here of the uh, preservation of life. So the Hebrew midwives were preserving life. We see that Moses' parents were preserving Moses. We were preserving life. What we see here in uh, Esther is she's got this, the reason why she's going forward to the king to have this conversation and to risk her life breaking a law is because there's a preservation of life ethic that's at stake here when it comes to the wider uh, context of her family and Jewish people. And this is an important distinction because we actually see this coming up time and time again, this preservation of life. We actually even see it with Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Uh, it says in the law that the woman that was caught in adultery was to be stoned. And Jesus is like, that's not what's going to happen here. Okay. And so even Jesus breaks the law and it's this in this context of this preservation of life. But we're not, we're not finished with all of these examples yet because there are more. There are different situations where we see people breaking kings or rulers or leaders laws. Here's, here's sort of another. So that's sort of the preservation of life category where people are going against king's commands. And a great example in a, in a more modern time is uh, World War II, when the Nazi leadership was actually commanding that the Jews be killed. And there were all kinds of Christians and even people that weren't Christian uh, believed that it was actually wrong for that to happen. And so what happened is that um, people rose up and they didn't kill the Jews because they broke the laws of the Nazi rulers by preserving the life of the Jews by hiding them and helping them escape out of the country. And so this preservation of life ethic when it comes to breaking the king's commands or breaking rules of ungodly government, unjust laws where people are dying, and when they shouldn't be, uh, that's where uh, Christians draw this line. And they say, okay, obviously uh, we need to break this law because this law is not in accordance to God's law. And uh, as we continue on here, we're going to see some other cases. Okay, so over in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, we see Daniel being forbidden to pray. So the whole context of, uh, of the story. And again, it's in the same time period as Esther. So Esther is in this uh, ungodly kingdom, just like the Egyptians were ungodly people over the Hebrew people. Uh, but now we, we go over to Daniel and Daniel's in the Babylonian empire and Esther is in uh, the, I believe it's the empire of the Medes and the Persians where she is. And anyway, over, as we're over in Daniel chapter six, we see uh, Daniel's got these people around him, other leaders that are saying, hey, this, uh, this Daniel guy, we're kind of a little jealous of him and we want to catch him and get rid of him. And so what they do is they uh, get this 
group of people together and persuade King Nebuchadnezzar to, oh, sorry, King Denarius to uh, make this law that says that uh, no one can pray to anyone else other than King Denarius. And so all the way through this, Daniel has to make a decision. Daniel actually decides to continue to pray as his. So then verse 11, so maybe start at verse 10. It says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, so these people had made this document that, that says that you can't pray. So Daniel went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and the plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning his injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or any man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions? Here again. Daniel consciously knows that there's this law in place and he breaks it. He goes against it. And again, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do the same thing when they're commanded uh, to bow down and worship this golden image of this statue that is in uh, Babylon. And this is over in Daniel chapter 3 where we see this golden statue set up and when the, the sound of, of those musical instruments happen, everybody's to bow down and worship this image. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, no, we are not bowing down and worshiping this. And, but at the same time, we're going to submit to you, <laughs> King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel also shows this ethic of disobedience to the law but willing to submit to the consequences because he gets thrown in the lion's den and it's kind of like okay i'm going to get thrown in the lion's den shadrach meshach and abednego get thrown into the fiery furnace so whenever we're going to disobey there's also a submission that needs to be in place to the government authorities so if we're disobeying a law then being captured once we've disobeyed like these these fugitives that are on the run because they disobeyed the king or outlaws, so to speak. Um, that's not the context of what scripture says that this is happening in. See, the heart is to submit to government, but sometimes government makes decrees and laws that go against that of God. And we see in these two cases in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel himself, they are being asked to worship or to pray to something that is not part of what their belief system is. Um, Daniel's not going to pray towards the king, Denarius. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not going to bow down and worship King Nebuchadnezzar. And so they are committed to worshiping God and to praying to God. And so obviously they draw this line and say, we're not going to do this, but we're still going to do this by praying and worshiping God, even if it costs us our life. And this is an important 
time to think about this because of everything that's going on in our culture because are we currently being asked not to pray to God? Well, the answer to that question is no, we're not. Are we being told right now that we can't worship God and we must worship other things? Well, there's always the opportunity to worship other things, but we need to be worshiping Jesus. And the government hasn't made a decree that says that worshiping Jesus is illegal. So obviously there's nothing there that we need to disobey in our current situation, in our current country. So here again, what we see is this ethic of breaking God's commands, or not God's commands, but breaking the command of kings and rulers is when there is something that's actually forbidden that God has actually commanded. And they were willing to break those laws that the rulers had made, but they were submissive to those ungodly leaders with the consequences. Now, here's a third category too, and this one I was talking to my son about this one, and he was like, wow, dad, yeah, that's kind of cool, yeah, I didn't, I, you're right. So over in Matthew, let's move into the New Testament now, because here we see another situation where uh, people are breaking the king's or ruler's commands over in Matthew chapter 2. And this has to do with the story of the wise men. So Jesus is born, and uh, if you know the story of the birth of Jesus, you know that there were wise men that came from a far country, and they wanted to worship uh, King Jesus. And so they go to the palace as they enter Jerusalem, or in the area of Bethlehem, not Jerusalem. And uh, so, so let's, just, let's just read the story because here's, here's another situation. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them and where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet. And we get this. So in verse 7, it says, Then, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Okay? So the king has given them instructions, direct instructions about what to do. And after listening to the king, verse 9, they went on their way. So this, this is a situation where the king, who has, his word is the final authority here, okay? It's not this is a suggestion that you should do. No, I am telling you, you need to come and report back to me. So after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it arose and went before them until they came to, the, to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly and with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him, and they opened their treasures and they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then here's the kicker. And verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So here's the context of this. 
the wise men come into this, uh, into King Herod's palace. They go to the leader, the ruler, they talk to him. He's a little disturbed about this. And so he says to them, you need to come and tell me where this is, where this King of the Jews is being born. And for all intents and purposes, they walk out of the palace thinking in themselves, of course, we are going to tell Herod because Herod has told us that he wants to come and worship him also. So now they go, they find Jesus, they worship him, and now they have this dream where God divinely steps into the lives of these wise men. And remember, these are wise men coming from a totally different country, but they are worshipers of Jesus. They worship God. And God warns them not to tell Herod. And so they depart to their own country by another way. Now, this is important because here we have these wise men from another country disobeying the order of king. So does Herod get upset about this? Yes, he does. Herod gets very upset about this. And what we see transpiring in the rest of the chapter two is that verse 16 says, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. You see, there are times when we need to disobey direct orders from a king. In this case here, what we see is God breaking in to the lives of the wise men through a dream. And can God still speak through dreams? Yes. Does it happen on a regular basis? No, it's actually quite rare for it to happen. But here's a situation where God spoke to the wise men. God can speak to us today through the Holy Spirit. And in fact, this needed to happen or else it's quite clear that Herod would have killed baby Jesus. And God was protecting uh, his sovereign plan by setting the world free from sin and brokenness. So here's another case where we see uh, people breaking laws of the land, laws of the kings to, and again, in this case, it's to preserve life, the life of Jesus. But also we can talk about Jesus doing this too in the New Testament where Jesus uh, in chapter eight of John is, is in this scenario where he's breaking these laws, the laws of the land, even the, uh, the scriptures, the 10 commandments say thou shalt not commit adultery the societal laws of uh, Israel said that uh, if, if someone committed adultery, then they must be stoned. And Jesus does not agree with that. He, he breaks that law. And again, we have this preservation of life. Jesus healing on the Sabbath in Luke chapter 13. We talked about these two examples last week with Jesus. Um, again, there's a preservation of life that's happening here, bringing healing into the context of a sick person. So, all of these biblical examples we have help build for us this ethic about how to actually know when we should be breaking the laws of kings or rulers or leaders 
in our current time. So I've just got some bullet points here about how to how to work through this. So number one is that there's always submission to government even when you're disobeying. And that's important to realize because submission to government is seen by accepting the consequences of governmental authority. And all of the examples that we've looked at today, we see a uh, submission to governing authorities by accepting the consequences of what the governmental authorities have put in place. Disobeying and then wanting a free ride from the consequences, that is disobedience without submission. And that's, that's problematic. That's actually not uh, what God has called God's people to be. And you can be submissive and be disobedient. But you can't be disobedient and unsubmissive because that's actually not what God has called us to. And so we, we need to make sure that we clarify that distinction. Here's the second thing is that disobedience is on principle. And the principle is that there are different situations where we see in Scripture, number one, preservation of life. Num number two is that there's the worship of God or there's direct communication from God uh, to uh, be disobedient. And also what we see in the book of Acts is that there is this uh, telling the truth about God where they're just committed uh, to do that whether they're breaking laws or not. So let's, uh, let's be faithful to submit to government even in disobedience but let's be disobedient on principle, because that's the second thing we need to realize here, that we submit to government even in disobedience, but we need to disobey on principle. And that's this whole uh, larger topic of, uh, of our conscience. And we're going to unpack that uh, as we continue to go on here. So now at the same time, when we sort of fast forward, a lot of these are historical examples that we find in Scripture and even more recently in World War II. Uh, but we find ourselves today living in this world where there are new restrictions that are placed on us because of COVID. And uh, a lot of these uh, make us feel uncomfortable because they're new, but also because we don't want to be restricted. Sometimes it's a change in habit. Uh, you know, we can talk about seatbelt laws. There was a time when no one wore their seatbelt and then they began to institute seatbelt laws. And there was a whole process where people started to uh, wear seatbelts. And now today, it's kind of like pretty much normal. Everybody gets in a car and they put on their seatbelt. So there, there are these new laws that come out from time to time. And, and there's pushback because we don't necessarily like them. We don't necessarily agree with them. And that's what we see happening right now during COVID. There's some a, a number of things that are coming out that make us, especially in the church, uncomfortable. Uh, those that in society are very uncomfortable by this uh, with protests that are happening and uh, people defying lockdowns and continuing to have their businesses open or, or churches that are continuing to have their church open uh, despite um, laws that may point to the contrary. So he, this is why this topic is so hot right now, but it's also very relevant and it's a good time for us to actually think through what this actually looks like. 
looks like in our culture because there are a number of situations where governing authorities can and do place restrictions on individuals and churches uh, for the benefit of society, for the benefit of the people that uh, attend and participate in those things. So one of the first examples I want to draw to our attention is gathering size has always been limited. Now, for some of us, as we think about this in the context of the church, we're like, well, our church is now restricted to gathering in, in a percentage of 30%. Well, churches have always been restricted in gathering size based on the building codes. We just can't have any building, even your house, is restricted by how many people can live in it based on building codes. And those building codes are in place because there's safety for the people that are inside of them, whether it's because of a fire or just space that's needed in those. And it's actually administrated fairly. We have the building code to administrate that. We have building inspectors. We have fire safety plans. We have all of these things that are in place to help uh, protect the safety of people. And that is something that is normal, but not everybody thinks about that. Um, in current businesses, there are restrictions on how many people that can be in a store at one time. But that's always been there. It's just been reduced in these last number, this last year, actually. And, and, and yes, we have, you know, some pushback about whether it's fair, like who's picking these numbers and are they arbitrary? And there hasn't been a lot of disclosure and uh, transparency with the government on how they came up with these new numbers to, to make all of this make sense. Uh, but it's always actually been in place. We've always been restricted here in Canada of gathering size, uh, just based on building codes and what can be done around us. The other thing that we've always been restricted on in Canada is financial, financial things through the Canada Revenue Agency and uh, accounting practices. That's another thing that we are uh, totally controlled by and have restrictions based on insurance companies, we, in, in the context of the church, we have abuse prevention policies, we have liabilities, we have risk management when it comes to thinking about insurance and our insurance company policies. And you have them too at home in your own house and what's covered, what's not covered. We have all of these restrictions. And so in this, this context, we, we need to make sure that we're actually aligning our decision making up with the biblical uh, examples that we see of good government versus bad government, knowing when we actually can be uh, disobedient to the rulers and, and, and we have an ethic that God actually endorses in, in a number of situations where it's good to break the, the, the command of the king. But at, but at other times, we have these other passages like Romans 13 that actually talk to us about submitting to government and obeying the government authorities. And so there's a wide spectrum here because we've just talked about the far end, which is the preservation of life and, and killing people, worship and all of those things. Um, but we're also talking about the minor details of life when it comes to financial bookkeeping and uh 
building code capacity and even insurance policies that we all have in order to own homes and, and live in this culture that we live in. But where, where is this line? And what we need in that moment is a conscience and discernment. And so how we get to this place is that we actually have a conscience that's informed by scripture. We know what God's word says, and we don't actually take some of these scriptures that I've been mentioning and applying them to situations that are not the same. Because the situation that the midwives went through and Moses, the parents of Moses, is totally different than the situation that we find ourselves in today. It's very similar with the wise men. The wise men found themselves in a situation. They were totally oblivious. They believed the word of uh, Herod. But yet God revealed to them in a dream that Herod's heart was not that. And they disobeyed his order to come and tell him and they went back to another country. So there's, there's all kinds of examples of disobedience in scripture but we need to be able to draw the parallel between what we find ourselves facing today and what is actually called God is leading us through our conscience, through discernment. So let me just unpack a couple of things about discernment here. See, discernment is this ability to judge well, and it's obtaining spiritual guidance and understanding to the situation that you find yourself in. And part of what we're doing here is uh, unpacking the role of the church and culture, uh, but also uh, giving a platform for obedience to rulers uh, because of their godly context of leading godly in how it's defined in the context of the church or the scriptures, but also showing that there are a number of biblical examples and, and from history, too, where there's disobedience to king's commands. And uh, let's, let's be discerning and use these scriptures to guide us so that we have the ability to judge well. And uh, hopefully everyone is judging well and they're using their conscience to... Uh, help them navigate through this world that we find ourselves living in. So what is this concept of the conscience? So the conscience is an inner feeling or an inner voice. I would actually love to say it's inner thought-provoking, critical, analytical thinking uh, that guides us to the rightness or the wrongness of behavior. So the King James uh, Dictionary defines it as uh, internal or self-knowledge of right and wrong. It's the faculty or power or principle within us which decides on the lawfulness or unlawfulness of our own actions and affections. And it instantaneously approves or condemns them. And conscience is called by some writers the moral sense, and it's also considered uh, as an original faculty of how God has created us. And so God has given everyone a conscience. 
And we have a number of examples in scripture about how this is true, that God gives each person a conscience. Um, now that conscience is either good and clear, or sorry, maybe I need to break these down because I don't want, there, there's different categories of a conscience, okay? So we have a clear conscience. We have a good conscience. We have a uh, weak conscience. We have a seared conscience, or another word to describe that kind of conscience is insensitive. And then we have what's called a wicked conscience in scripture. So obviously as Christians, we don't want to have this wicked conscience that's, that's talked about in scripture, but uh, we all did have. We all did have a sinful, evil conscience before we came to Christ. And then because of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives, once we've accepted the message of Jesus, we actually get to this place where our evil conscience is made pure through the work and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And uh, sin actually dulls our conscience. And it's sin, we're told in 1 Timothy 4, uh, it's sin that actually sears the conscience or makes it insensitive to the Spirit of God, to the things that should be wrong. And it's actually pretty easy to tell whether your conscience is seared or not, or evil, based on what you think is right and wrong. So if you think that loving your neighbor is right, then your conscience is good. If you think that loving your neighbor only applies in certain situations, then your conscience is seared or weak because you're not maintaining the ethic that what, of what we see in Scripture. So we want to be people that are living in this uh, clear or pure conscience. So what does it mean to have a conscience like that? So a clear conscience is when the past actions that you do don't actually produce any painful reaction inside of you. And this is getting down to this idea of how we feel guilt. So let's say, for instance, I do something that is good. Well, after I do that, I'm going to have affirming uh, feelings. I'm going to have uh, reactions that are reinforcing that this was actually good. Um, and when that's the case, I have this clear conscience. On the other hand, when I do something and I feel guilty inside, I feel maybe some shame inside, I feel all of these other emotions that might make me question what I actually did, that's our conscience telling us that that wasn't a good thing to do. Um, and when we correct those actions or behaviors, so let's say I was mean to my wife and then my conscience kicks in and says, Chris, you should not have said that. And then I go back to my wife and I say, I'm really sorry for saying that. Then I get to this place of this clear conscience. And so that's how we get to this place of a clear conscience, a conscience that's actually sensitive and active 
in judging past events is considered to be a good conscience. And there's a, all kinds of passages of scripture that talk about this. And that's the kind of conscience we actually want in our world today, where we are sensitive and, and uh, reflective and active in judging our own past acts and how we're uh, behaving towards other individuals and, and how whether or not we're uh, considering them in all of these situations. And so if our conscience is sensitive, it's the scripture is telling us that that's a good conscience. At the same time, sometimes our conscience is drowned out, where the conscience is not active in judging past events. And in this, in this place, it's, it's said to be weak. Uh, another phrase that's used is actually wounded. And so if our conscience is clear, then how we make decision-making around this ethic of civil disobedience is a lot easier because we're sensitive to how we act around this. Um, if we've got this good conscience where we're very sensitive to, to how this is perceived, then we're going to make good, good decision-making around this. But if our conscience is weak or seared or evil, we're actually not going to be in a place to make good discerning decisions about when and how we need to be civilly disobedient. And in our world right now, this is sort of the big question. You know, where is this line? And well, this line is in your conscience and God will uh, speak to you through your conscience, through uh, his word, through this indwelling of the Holy Spirit to let you know where this line is. And right now, for a lot of people in the church, there's not agreement on where this line is. And it's actually quite sad because what that shows is that uh, we are not all living with a good conscience or a clear conscience. And in fact, in some cases, maybe the conscience is seared. And in other cases, maybe the conscience is actually evil. So what we need to do as individuals is to align our conscience with God so that we can actually make these wise decisions and have good discernment to uh, know what course of action to follow. And as we unpack all of this stuff that's going on in our culture that's all around us right now. Um, as Christians, we need to shine the light of Jesus into these situations, which means preaching the gospel, which means encouraging people to obey the laws of the land, but also knowing when these laws come into conflict with divine law. And that's when our conscience comes into play. And so the examples that we see in scripture, where we see these Hebrew midwives, where we see the parents of Moses, where we see Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, where we see the wise men who have made this conscious decision because they knew that they were about to break laws, but their conscience was excusing them. Their conscience was saying, 
you need to do this to be faithful to God. Hebrew midwives, actually, it says that they feared God. And they feared God more than they actually feared the Pharaoh. And so I think those are some highlights that we need to actually grab onto today. That we need a conscience that's, that's good. We need a conscience that is uh, rightly understood through the scriptures and, and informed by the scriptures. And we also need to realize that we are in this place where we do uh, disobey rules or governing rules. There still must be a submission to government where we're willing to accept the consequences because we're following God before we're following anything else. And whenever, and here, here's, here's a sort of a, a, a litmus test to tell whether you're sort of in the right space in your conscience and your discernment is if you feel that you need to disobey, then you also need to be in a place where you are fully accepting and okay with accepting the consequences because that is a sign that you're submissive to government even though you are disobedient to whatever law you were about to break. So all of these things play into how we decide when we actually need to disobey the government. And there may be a time in the future where you'll be asked to do things like take the mark of the beast. And you're like, okay, well, I can't do that because I'm not going to worship this beast. I'm worshiping God. There may be uh, a time in the, f in the future where Christians are being killed and you're like, no, this is not what God wants. And so I'm going to hide people and <clears throat> I'm not going to give up other um, believers. And so I'm going to disobey the governing authorities. But if I get caught, I'm willing to submit to the fact that I'm probably going to get killed. You see, all of this becomes important for us to think through when we find ourselves living in a society that is ungodly. And what we see in Canada is a continuing move away from a biblical worldview to a more secular worldview and where God's word and God's uh, rules and commands are not taken seriously. Uh, and as we find ourselves living every day closer to the times of the Egyptians, the times of the Babylonian kingdom, and the times of the Roman Empire, where believers from generations and thousands of years ago lived through, we need to learn and, and, and grow from their uh, living in that environment so that we can still continue to live honoring God in the environment that we live in today. So hopefully today this has been helpful and uh, there's we've covered a lot in terms of having to kind of think through and, and decide in your own mind where your conscience is on this. And uh, hopefully uh, as the church would think about their conscience and think about what God is calling them to do in the midst of their conscience, um, that we would become united. Because here's the thing, when we're all following Jesus, we're all following Jesus and we're all going in the same direction. 
And one of the things that really needs to happen currently across Canada is that the church just needs to be united on, on this whole subject of civil disobedience in the church. So hopefully this has maybe given you some, uh, and maybe you haven't even been thinking about this, you've been watching today, uh, but hopefully this has given you some things to think about and uh, to pray about and to consider as we talk and go through this season of the world that we find ourselves living in uh, as we've been over a year in this uh, in this pandemic pandemic uh, virus setting and there will be other things that will come in the future that will uh, sort of put us into the same uh, frame of mind so it's good for us to think this through now so any questions i don't know if i've uh, missed any questions There's been lots of comments going on today um but if uh if you've got any questions and you want to type them out that would be great be glad to to answer any questions uh if you don't have any questions uh cool i will uh i'm just scrolling through the all the comments so it doesn't seem to be any questions. So what I'll do then, if there's no questions, I'll just uh, wrap things up with a prayer. But it's good to be together. Good to be together online and just uh, spending some time talking about God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that your word lights the path for our life. Lord, I pray that we would think about the things that I've been talking about today. And Lord, that you uh, would just inform our conscience on how to live and how to be in the, our world today. Lord, I pray uh, for your church, that your church would have a united conscience about what you are calling us to do in this world that we live in today. And Lord, that our conscience would not be evil or seared or weak in any way, but that we would have a good conscience and a clear conscience and that uh, we would have discernment to judge and to make decisions about how to live our lives. And, and also, God, that we would, even in times when we feel that we need to be uh, disobedient to government, that we would actually still be submissive to government. And Lord, that, that we would uh, use that measuring line to help us see whether we are in uh, a good discerning place or a, a good place in our conscience. So God, I thank you for your word that lights our path. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would just give us boldness when uh, we need to be like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, Lord, that uh, we would have the wisdom that they had, that we would have the wisdom of the Hebrew uh, midwives, that we would have the wisdom of the wise men that came from the other countries uh, to worship Jesus. And, and know how to navigate in our world through this. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Great to see you today. Hope you have a great day, and we will see you next week. God bless. We hope you've enjoyed Coffee and Conversations with Chris. If you'd like to support this program, please visit pinewoodschapel.com give. See you next time.